from Public Radio International. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad. Recently, the Islamic State released a 10,000-word manifesto defining the role of women in Islamic society. Get married at age nine. Stay indoors, and by all means, don't get a job because that will corrupt you. All of that from the Islamic State's new guide to life for women. But child marriage is not a problem caused only by Islamic extremists. It's happening across continents, across countries, across religions. It's really everywhere. UNICEF reports there are 250 million women who are married before they turn 15. The majority of them are in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. But child marriage happens all over the world. The rules of marriage in many cultures have been in place for generations, and girls are married young for many reasons, some religious. Before, the priest used to think that marrying a girl over 15 years old after her administration starts is a bad thing. It lowers her quality. Others are married for economic reasons. So her grandmother forced her to get married, and she refused. Okay, at that time, the grandmother had already, she had received the dowry, the cows. And sometimes parents marry off their girls for their own safety. She came from the nearby rural village, around two hours, a walking distance from her village to her, her school. And even if she's a very talented, clever student, her family had a great fear. Since she's so beautiful, and someone may rape her, may abduct her when she go to the school, and they consider uh, it is good for her to get married at this stage. How can girls go to school if they are pulled out to get married? How can we end maternal death if you have 13-year-olds giving birth? Girls Not Brides founder Mabel von Aronia says early marriage stands directly in the way of achieving the UN's Millennium Development Goals. That's a sweeping plan to improve life on this planet. On the one hand, this is a major human rights abuse, but at the same time, it's also having a severe impact on our global efforts to end poverty. Her organization has recruited hundreds of NGOs worldwide to join in the fight against child marriage, and she's tapped world leaders to lend their influence to the movement, including former UN Secretary General General Kofi Annan and South Africa's Desmond Tutu. It's a campaign. I'm going to be committed to it as I was committed to the ending of apartheid. It's that kind of campaign for me. And I hope that all of those people who used to support us in our struggle against apartheid will say, yay! We're going for this. In this hour, we'll hear from the individuals and organizations working to change laws and change minds about child marriage. We begin in Kenya. About 60 girls gather for their weekly girls' forum at the Glory Learning and Community Center in a Nairobi slum. The girls here are young, from 9 to 14 years old. They giggle and they sing. No one should touch me. No 
and talk about boys. There is a boy who is following after you. What do you do? Yes, Rachel. I will tell him to leave me alone. Yes, Sharon. I can tell a person is older than me or my parents. Gloria Mwende is a leader among these girls. She's 11 years old. In their real life, they face real challenges and maybe their parents don't get them the time to sit with them, talk to them about these life challenges. But here in these clubs, with these teachers, they help us a lot and they help us in our life challenges. Their teacher is Eunice Nsioka. She's been at the school for five years. Boyfriends will come later. You need to concentrate on your studies and become great people in the future. Because there's, there's so many that is waiting for you out there. As an institution, our heart is to help the girls, to give them a hope for tomorrow, because they are brilliant girls. The girls in this forum are lucky. They have a support system at school, if not at home. They're encouraged to finish their education, to plan a future for themselves. So many girls around the world are not as lucky. Educators like Eunice also talk about a practice that often goes along with child marriage, and that's female genital mutilation, the tradition of cutting a girl's clitoris before she marries. It's estimated that 125 million women and girls have had that done to them. And experts say you can't address child marriage without addressing this practice. Reporter Emily Johnson went to rural northern Tanzania, where activists are tackling both. I'm on a bumpy dirt road leading out of Chirime. With me is local child rights activist Kambibi Kamgisha. As we leave the city behind, we notice small processions of people decked out with crowns and sashes. They're blowing whistles and dancing. Those are the boys in, the, in those sheets. And in the other places, you'll see the girls. It's December. And for the Kuria people who live around here, that means it's time for both boys and girls to be circumcised. These are the celebrations that follow the procedure. The girls who've been cut walk slowly, shaded beneath colorful parasols, their faces painted white. I see people covered in leafy branches, while others dance with machetes. It's all very joyous, infectious even. But for Kambibi, the celebrations are a reminder of what she's up against. Tradition says these children are now officially ready for marriage. You might be 14, but they regard you as somebody who is, can take responsibility of the family, somebody who can be married, who can marry. If female genital mutilation, or FGM as it's known, is so inextricably linked to early marriage, then disrupting one could put a halt to the other, which is why we're headed to Masanga. We pull into a yard where hundreds of young girls are running around, playing or sprawled on the grass. The blue and white building looks like a typical school, and for most of the year, that's what it is. But in December, when school's out, it becomes a safe house. A young nun walks onto the schoolyard and is swarmed by girls. This is Sister Jermaine Baibika, who runs Masanga Center. She greets the girls by name, returns their hugs, and beckons me into a classroom. There are no desks, just stacks of mattresses. Some girls do not really have permission of the mother or the, or, or the father. And they just run away and, and they come they here. they run away, they come here. And this year, because mutilation has been very rough, there are many, so many here. Sister Germaine first opened the safe house back in 2008. 
That year, 50 girls sheltered here. This year, there are more than 600. They'll stay till the end of the month, when it should be safe for them to go home without being cut. Mary, not her real name, is 12 years old. She's slim with close-cropped hair. Her escape to Masanga, she says, was thanks to her socks. She made the plan, herself, she made the plan of coming here. And at school, that day, she did not put on socks on purpose. And the teacher sent her back. You are not in full uniform, you don't have the school socks, so you go home. She took that opportunity to go to the rescue camp. When Mary's mother realized she'd run away, she was furious. She told the girl over the phone that she would have to find new parents. So now Mary plans to work toward becoming a teacher. She and her new friends at Masanga call themselves the Modern Girls. Do you want to get married ever? Why not, I ask. She would like to study, she says. The safe house employs round-the-clock security to prevent parents or clan members from snatching the girls back. But after December, there isn't much Sister Germaine can do to protect them. There just isn't the funding to keep them all there indefinitely. So she does her best to build a bridge back home. On the graduation day now, we gave certificates to the girls. We called all the traditional leaders. We called the woman who mutilates girl. We called representatives from the church. We called the parents. We called everybody. So, so many people came. We did it on purpose so that the people who will come to that ceremony could hear and get the message and know that these people have chosen not to be mutilated. For those girls who aren't welcomed back or never made it to a safe house, there's a resource. The Children's Dignity Forum has an office just a couple hours back down the road in Turime. They serve many of the surrounding villages, including one just 15 minutes from town, where Kambibi Kamugisha introduces me to a 15-year-old girl I'll call Grace. Grace is wearing a pink dress she made herself. She's been training to be a tailor since running away from her husband. So her grandmother forced her to get married, and she refused. Okay, at that time, the grandmother had already received the dowry, the cows. Grace is from the Luo tribe, and she became a second wife to a much older Kuria man who beat her badly. She ran away, moving from place to place, before another young woman, a single mother, finally took her in. She says that man has tried a lot to get her back and he has tried to search for her wherever she goes. The thought of her husband turning up hangs over Grace. He paid five cows for her, after all. Dowries, which the husband pays to the family of his wife, are a major driving force behind early marriages here, especially for families struggling to make ends meet. Grace much prefers investing in herself. If I'm trained in tailoring, I might be able to do my own job and get my own way of me, my own means of surviving. Later at the CDF office, I meet Sophia. 
She's 17, with a one-year-old baby at home. Her husband left when she was pregnant. She doesn't blame her own mother for marrying her off at 16, but she does hope for better for her own child. I believe my daughter is in safe hands, she says, knowing there's another way, without FGM and without early marriage. It's a lesson she intends to pass down. For America Abroad, I'm Emily Johnson in Tanzania. Now to the bigger picture. Officials in nearly two dozen African nations recently set an ambitious goal, end child marriage by the year 2020, in just five years. But a global issue like child marriage takes a global effort to change it. That's the idea behind Girls Not Brides, an organization founded in 2011 with the goal of ending child marriage everywhere in one generation. Mabel von Aranya is Girls Not Brides chair and founder, and she's here now. Mabel, thanks for joining us. Nice to be with you. So what do you attack first? Your goal is to end child marriage, the 15 million girls getting married every year, to end that in a generation. It's a very complicated, multi-layered problem with lack of education, with religious and cultural traditions, with poverty, economic problems. What do you attack first? What's most important? Well, you know, this is the question we asked ourselves three years ago because we said, whoa, it's such a big problem and it can't be that nobody's paying attention. And so what we realized is, first of all, we needed to raise awareness about this issue. We needed to take the taboo away. And so we did that by having people like Krasa Michelle and Kofi Annan and Archbishop Desmond Tutu commit to changing it. That really helps. So what we've done is raise more global awareness around the issue. And then we created this partnership called Girls Not Brides, the global partnership to end child marriage. And we decided, although global visibility is of course important, ultimately change is gonna happen in the lives of these girls, in the lives of their families, really at a grassroots level in the community. And so in the last three years, Girls Not Brides has grown to a partnership of now more than 400 members from more than 60 countries all over the world. Some of them are very big organizations like, you know, Care USA or Human Rights Watch. But many, many of them are courageous individuals who are working in villages far away from big urban centers in places like Tanzania, Nepal, Bangladesh, Senegal, trying to change these norms. And so what we have learned in these last few years by looking at what's working and also, of course, looking at what's not working, is that we know there are four sets of interventions that will really help to make a difference. So first, we need to empower girls. We need to make sure that they are aware of their rights. We need to make sure that they realize that child marriage is not a good thing. We need to make them understand that they're actually valued human beings. Secondly, what we need to do is sensitize communities, help the men and everybody who's powerful in the community, but it's often the men, help them realize how harmful child marriage is. And that's actually in their interest to make sure the girls don't marry too early. Thirdly, we need to come up with with alternatives. We need to come up with schooling, 
safe schooling that is easily accessible and where is good quality education so that there's actually an alternative for girls if they don't get married. And similarly, we need to help girls understand about their reproductive uh, health because all too often you see 12-year-old girls who get pregnant never having heard about what sex is and how you get pregnant. And if we could make sure that that doesn't happen, then girls don't have to get married at an early age. And lastly, we need to make sure not only that countries have laws that say 18 should be the minimum age for marriage, but also that these laws actually get implemented. How do you, though, combat the idea that here are well-meaning but outsider groups um, imposing their cultural and religious norms on a traditional culture that maybe the village elders say, you don't know our mores, you don't know our traditions. What are you doing coming in here and imposing your view on our way of life? Well, I I understand that you might be slightly skeptical, and I agree that if this was outsiders coming in, it would probably not work, because exactly like you say, then the people from the community would say, look, we don't agree. But what this is, these are local organizations that are actually the ones who are driving that message and helping people, whether it's from Zambia or whether it's from Kenya or whether it is in Sri Lanka or whether it is in Afghanistan, understand about, you know, understand the harms of child marriage. Is it possible to change this given the state of poverty that a lot of these villages uh, are in, a lot of these communities are in? In other words, is the answer to this modernization and uh, economic mobility. And as such, that's a very difficult thing for one organization to change the economic fortunes of of a region. So is it possible to change it without having the economics change substantially? Well, I think the economic change and the empowerment of girls go hand in hand. And we know that that the four um, kinds of interventions that we have identified make a difference. What I'm more concerned about sometimes is, and what can keep me awake at night, is this question of how do we make sure that all these interventions reach all the 15 million girls who are at risk of marriage every year, year after year after year. And at the same time, I'm hopeful because we know very little about how social norm change happens. We know that once it starts happening, it can go really fast. For example, the issue of foot binding in China, you know, the fact that that families would wrap their girls' feet up and tie them up so tightly that these girls could never properly walk. That happened for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But once the change happened, It only took 20 years from foot binding being something that you were proud to do, that was the honorable thing to do, to foot binding becoming something that as parents you absolutely did not want to do for your your daughters. And similarly, for example, if you think about social norms around gay and lesbian rights in America, who could have predicted 20 years ago that, you know, basically now the Supreme Court might, you know, allowing gay marriage in every state? Um, Or think about smoking. I remember, um, you know, you would enter an an airplane and up to row 14, you couldn't smoke. And from row 15 onwards, you could smoke. That would be completely unacceptable nowadays. So we know that this kind of social norm change, how people look at what is acceptable and what's not acceptable, can really change quickly. You would almost say overnight. And so I am hopeful that the same can happen for child marriage. Mabel Van Aronja, chair and founder of Girls Not Brides. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let girls be girls and not brides. 
You're listening to Saving Innocence, the global fight to end child marriage on America Abroad. Coming up, we'll visit the Amhara region of Ethiopia, where religious leaders are key to changing long-standing marriage practices. We're confident that when the patriarch of the Orthodox Ethiopian Orthodox Church stands up and proclaims, we must end child marriage, at least that faith will end child marriage. That's next on America Abroad. Let us know your thoughts about this program. Tweet us at America underscore abroad. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Saving Innocence, the global fight to end child marriage on America Abroad. That's an anti-dowry PSA sponsored by the National Campaign to End Child Marriage in Nepal. It says in part, are our daughters cheaper than the animals and cars that we give them as dowry? This message is played on TV, on the radio, even in movie halls and on buses, especially in the Tarai region where child marriage is common. UNICEF reports that Nepal is among the 20 countries with the highest rates of child marriage, and its location in South Asia places it in the region with the most child marriages in the world. But the Nepalese government has been working hard to end child marriage. In terms of number, actually, the figures are high, but the trend is in declining. Kiran Rupakiti heads the Child Protection and Development Section in the Ministry of Women, Children and Social Welfare for Nepal. Last spring, his ministry began working with UNICEF to draft a national strategy to end child marriage in Nepal. He says they're focusing on a few key areas. One is empowerment of girls. Another is quality education to the girls, and also the involvement of the male and youth, boys, and uh, community mobilization. And last but not the least, it's a legal reform. Child marriage was outlawed in 1963, but their definition of child marriage was, for girls at least, below the age of 14. Recent revisions adjusted that age to 20 for both boys and girls, But those rules are not strictly enforced, especially in rural regions. Changing the practice of child marriage in Nepal is going to take more than just changing the laws. There is a mindset. We need to change the mindset of the whole nation. Raj Kumar Mahato heads up Bahor, the organization behind the PSA you heard earlier. This has become agenda of discussion in every place. If you look at going to ground transportation like bus, tempo, micro, if you travel through aeroplane, if you go to temple, if you go to bank, everywhere due to the social change initiative, people are talking about this issue. So it will take time to end completely, but very positive signs have been observed. In Pakistan, too, there's been a push from the government to change child marriage laws. In 2013, authorities passed a law that raised the age of marriage to 18 for both boys and girls in the southeastern corner of the country. There's a massive effort underway to expand this bill to other regions in Pakistan and ultimately raise the age of marriage nationwide. But there are complications. Charmaine Shah works with Action Aid International. Poverty is a very big uh, reason where the girl child is considered an economic burden over the parents. And even if she's earning an income, it's considered not acceptable for the parents to take anything from the girl. So they would like to wed her as soon as possible to shed that uh, responsibility. 
families simply can't afford to keep their daughters at home. Another issue is that in that area, the Sin province, many people don't even know there is a child marriage law. It's very important that a mass public awareness campaign is launched, you know, not only by the government, but also the civil society plays a very key role around that so that at least the community knows and is aware of the issues around child marriages and how it affects the development as well as the health of children. And there's yet another obstacle. It's a religious one. Roxana Shama is the program manager for Bedari. It's a group that's been working against child marriage since 2008. We, a civil society, through the legislatures, made a lot of efforts to put a law on table in parliament. But what happened was that all the Islamic factions present in the parliament, they were very much against it. And the amendment was sent to Council of Islamic Ideology. And since then, it is pending there and the law was lapsed. Some interpretations of Islamic texts dictate that girls should be married off at puberty. And while advocates are hopeful that this tradition can be adapted to make life better for girls, Charmaine Shah says this will never happen without the support of local religious leaders. They have a huge influence over the mindset of the people and how they think, especially for a population that is not very literate. So a huge promotion needs to be done in terms of getting them on our side and helping them push this agenda forward. It's not just Islam. There's a similar situation in Ethiopia, where the majority of the population is Ethiopian Orthodox Christian. In Ethiopia, too, there's widespread poverty and deeply embedded traditions dictating that girls marry very young. But there is an effort underway in some of Ethiopia's rural regions to end child marriage. These efforts, surprisingly, are led by Ethiopian Orthodox priests. Colin Cozier brings us this story. At an Ethiopian Orthodox cathedral in the capital Addis Ababa, priests and worshippers pray and ululate during this year's Ethiopian Christmas in early January. The Orthodox Church dominates life in Ethiopia, and its priests are some of the country's most respected figures. So when priests take child brides, often aged 15 or younger, it's not something that's questioned by the community. Rather, it's expected. Tradition dictates that a priest must marry a virgin. Before, the priest used to think that marrying a girl over 15 years old after her administration starts is a bad thing. It lowers her quality. 45-year-old Malak Berhan Yuanetu Yetemene is the second top priest in his region, a rural area in southern Amhara, in the cool Ethiopian highlands. His district includes 56 churches with more than 2,000 priests. And his experience with child marriage is personal. When he was 22, he married a girl who was only nine years old. She didn't really understand she was married. She considered me as a brother or a father. And until she was 15, she never understood that we were Married. He says though sexually tempted by his new wife, he waited until she was 16 before consummating the marriage. He tells the story of his friend, also a young priest at the time, who was derobed after injuring his 11-year-old bride with a traumatic fistula. 
Malak Bohan says he was careful not to make the same mistake. He was misguided by the tradition rather than by the Bible. That was a bad story, while my tolerance is a good story. The priest and his wife are still together today, and in the years since their wedding, Malak Bohan has blessed countless child marriages. But then, about a year ago, the priest's position on child marriage was challenged. A group called Finote Hyot End Child Marriage Program ran a workshop for the top priests in the district. Over five days, the priests were asked to reinterpret the Bible. Finote Hyot only showed us what the Bible already said. They didn't say, you should do this or you shouldn't do that. Rather, they asked us to study the Bible and find our own meaning. By workshopping the Bible, the priest and his peers realised their long-held traditions on marriage and virginity cloaked a more important teaching, that children should be protected. They came to the consensus that child marriage is harmful. And so there's been mindset changes of understanding the scripture as it relates to end-child marriage. Sigurd Hansen leads the Finote Hewat program in Ethiopia. It's so important to have preaching guidelines that come from the church, not from people like myself, not like my colleagues, not from other organizations. Since the workshop, the priests have started holding monthly meetings where they share what they have learnt and champion their new anti-child marriage message. Merlach Bohan says there are penalties for priests who conduct underage weddings or marry young girls themselves. The priests also counsel parents, and children learn about the new rules at Sunday school. What we have in Ethiopia is a structure of obedience to the leaders. And when we have the leaders say something, it's a trickle-down effect. The, 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 the community understands. But if the leader doesn't understand, the community will not understand. Malak Bahan says about 250 child marriages have since been prevented in the district. 26 marriages have gone ahead, though he suggests those were probably arranged before the workshop. The priest also says the virginity requirement isn't what it used to be. Previously, a man would cause excessive bleeding when taking a girl's virginity. And if she didn't bleed, he would beat her up. But these days, people are becoming conscious and it is already becoming history. Finote Hewitt Sigurd Hansen says this progress is encouraging, but his organisation doesn't want to roll out its religious intervention program across the region. Instead, he'd like to see the church take on that role itself in a grassroots, ground-up approach. But he says change also has to come from the top down. So the challenge here in Ethiopia is to go to the top, top, in other words, we're confident as when the patriarch of the Orthodox, Ethiopian Orthodox Church, stands up and proclaims, we must end child marriage, at least that faith will end child marriage. A proclamation Hansen says he's yet to make. For America Abroad, I'm Colin Cozier in Ethiopia.
as we've heard throughout our program so far, there are hundreds of individuals and organizations working to end child marriage. One of the first, also in the Amhara region of Ethiopia, is called Burhane Huwan. It's headed up by Annabelle Irolkar. She's Ethiopia's country director for the Population Council. She's been working on child marriage issues for about 20 years now. And when she started, she noticed a big problem. Programs addressing child marriages have to be implemented in some of the most remote rural places, in sub-Saharan Africa at least. And they're the most difficult for programmers and researchers to tackle because in some places there's just no access. There's no road, there's no electricity, there's no telephone network. Uh, You simply have to walk there. Beyond that, existing programs were targeting what she calls elite populations, girls who were already in school, who already had access to some resources. And so 15 years ago, Irolkar and her team partnered up with the Ethiopian government and went to one of the most remote regions of the country to begin her group, Burhane Huwan. We held community conversations to address social norms. Uh, We provided school materials to take advantage of the protective effect of schooling. They also offered a goat to any family who kept their daughter in school for the duration of the program. And they provided female mentors for girls who were already married. They were surprisingly successful results, particularly in preventing the very earliest child marriages in the Amhara region. Here's what they found. At the end of the pilot, the youngest girls, aged 10 to 14 or so, were one-tenth as likely to be married and three times more likely to be in school compared to girls who weren't in the program. However, what happened after that is that while we said that there were these incredible results based on this intervention, there were also lingering doubts about Can this be scaled up over large populations? Is it cost effective? Does our government partner have the resources to be able to scale this over huge populations? That's the next step. Annabelle Irolkar says the next generation of Berhane Huwan is looking to answer those questions. So the project has expanded to other countries, Burkina Faso and Tanzania. And Irolkar and her team are analyzing the program now and will share their results later this year. You're listening to Saving Innocence, the global fight to end child marriage on America Abroad. Coming up. Whether you like it or not, if I go into a village and if I say to the local government or local leaders that I want to gather people so I tell them about violence against women, I promise you no one would would show up. But if if you say that you wanted to show a film, you know, they're going to come out and see it. That will open up the conversation. How filmmakers are joining the fight to end child marriage. And speaking of film, visit our website for a short video about a former child bride named Tadelich, who's working toward a better life for herself and her two children. We're at americaabroad.org. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Saving Innocence, the global fight to end child marriage on America Abroad. Just imagine that you are a 13-year-old girl, and your parents tell you that you have to get married, maybe next week, to someone in their home country that you've never seen, maybe you've never even been there before. And imagine that your parents tell you that if you don't submit to the marriage, that you'll be kicked out immediately. 
that you'll be cut off. That's Jean Smoot, senior policy counsel with the Tahiri Justice Center in Washington, D.C. In this promotional video from their website, Smoot is talking about forced marriages among immigrants right here in the United States. Now, the numbers aren't as dramatic as what we've heard so far in the program. A recent Tahiri survey reported about 3,000 known cases of forced marriages across the U.S., but Smoot says it's still a serious problem with serious consequences. And this isn't a story from 20 years ago, 10 years ago. It, it's within the last five years. So I think it's happening. It's happening across the United States, and it's happening to many different people, many different ages. A case may involve uh, physical assault, kidnapping, unlawful restraint, uh, stalking, uh, all sorts of other elements that um, may not be uh, as recognized to individuals who aren't seeing forced marriage for what it is. She shares one story of a 13-year-old born in New York who was taken overseas to be married, and this story about an even younger girl. You know, a colleague recently shared with me that her mother was a first-grade teacher in a northern Virginia county, and one of her students uh, was sent back to the parents' home country to be betrothed as a first-grader, and just a few years later was sent back again to be married. The group Tahiri was founded in 1997 to advocate for immigrant women and girls facing gender-based violence and persecution. Jean Smoot says the biggest challenge they face is that law enforcement agencies and social service providers aren't prepared to handle their cases. One of the unique things we began to notice about their vulnerabilities is that they were falling between the cracks of existing legal protections um, and falling between the cracks in some instances of agencies' competence. The girls seeking help at Tahiri often have many strikes against them. They might not be able to meet privately with a lawyer or counselor without their parents' knowledge. They may not have access to a phone or email that isn't monitored. But more than that, Smoot says they are taking a big risk, defying their family's wishes. These are situations within a family uh, where there's love, even as there's this terrible problem going on, this terrible abuse. And... We have the natural inclination of a child to defer to their parents, to depend on their parents, to trust on their parents, and taking a step to defy what those parents are setting forth for the child, let alone to separate from that family, is a huge, huge move. Defying the family's wishes is a move that goes against tradition. And for girls to have any hope of a better future, a sense of agency over their own lives, there will have to be a fundamental shift in the way girls are treated worldwide. Manisha Gupte is a longtime activist for the rights of women and girls and founder of Masum, that's a women's rights group in Western India. She says for all the work being done by NGOs, policymakers and governments, the most important work must be done by the girls themselves. How can anybody decide for anyone else? I think everyone must be in charge of their own destinies. And adults can only decide up to a point where, you know, I mean, they can decide how much money they have to put aside for the education of their children. They can decide in the early years of how to raise the child. I think adults cannot really make up their minds on behalf of children. And as children grow up, if they only gave their children a few more years to decide, I think that would be good. Your organization is concerned with broader women's rights. How does this play into that? How does child marriage affect the advancement of women in India? We believe that if there's empowerment in any one area of life, that will translate into other areas. And for the past 27 years, we have seen that economic empowerment leads to better education for their children, 
Educational access means better health outcomes. Better health outcomes means better political participation. Educated parents means uh, the fact that their children will have the opportunity to move out of that village and go into a job elsewhere. So any one area of empowerment leads to another area of empowerment. So how is this something that you change? I mean, this isn't something that you go, you know, and, and change a law and say that there will, for now on, be no more child marriages. This is something that goes to the heart of Indian identity and long centuries-old traditions, family by family. So how do you actually carry out your work? First, let me, you know, give you the truth that it's not just Masoom's effort that is raising the age at marriage. When people have education, when people branch out and go to the cities and children are able to negotiate just with mom and dad and not with a whole, whole group of people, the age at marriage is increasing on its own. So having said that, a marriage is a community issue. So we can't work just with individuals. We have to work with communities. We have to work with elected representatives. Uh, we have to work with parents. Uh, we start with children as young as grade three, and we don't sermonize. Uh, we don't, you know, in quotes like brainwash because that's not fair. Uh, but we show kids that boys and girls are equal. Also, because of Masoom's 27-year intervention, the kids that are growing up now have seen role models of women being in public places as elected representatives, as leaders of the village. So these children have seen women in roles of decision making. They've seen subordinated caste women in those roles. So now children have data, they have evidence, they have much more self-confidence and therefore these youth groups then sit with parents and then they talk. So this is how we deal. On the other hand, we pass resolutions in village committees or in, in village general body meetings to say that there will be no child marriage in this village anymore. So what we do is we start building pressure, gentle pressure, non-violent pressure, but mounting pressure. That becomes convincing to a few parents and they then become role models. Then we know that will be the norm uh, in a few years' time because parents are not monsters, they are not evil, they are not doing something to deliberately hurt their children. But because of the limited opportunities they've seen, they think it is best to get their children married early. That's Manisha Gupte. She runs a women's rights group. It's called Masum in Western India. Finally today, we look at a unique way advocates are working to end child marriage, and that's through film. For this story, we return to Ethiopia, this time to the southern part of the country, where child abduction into marriage is still a common practice. Tennessee Watson has this report. Different is a film based on the true story of two Ethiopians, a young girl, Abarash Bekele, and her lawyer, Maaza Ashanafi. Bekele inspired the character Harut, a 14-year-old girl we follow as she bounds home from school. The mood shifts as she's surrounded by a band of men on horseback. She's taken to a hut on the edge of town where she's raped. Later, she sneaks off, grabbing her captor's rifle, but he follows her into the woods. Cornered, she turns to face this man, who hopes to be her husband, and pulls the trigger. With that shot, she interrupts one of Ethiopia's oldest traditions, 
the violent practice of telepha, where men rape and abduct young girls into marriage. Harut is arrested and charged with murder. Ashanafi, the founder of the Ethiopian Women Lawyers Association, rushes three hours from the capital to take the girl's case. Her trial eventually leads to a strengthening of Ethiopia's laws against child marriage. Despite the gains chronicled in the film, the ancient tradition of Telepha is still prevalent. Differet's producer, Merit Mondefro, and her husband, the film's writer and director, Zerasane Burhane Mahari, are both Ethiopian. It was important for them to take a critical look at their culture's transformation, but without demonizing tradition. There were multiple people who actually came up to us after the film, after seeing the film, and basically said, like, oh, I thought this was a story about another horrible thing about Africa and how, you know, this this things happened to women. And then at the end of the film, they actually come out as sympathetic to the men because they don't know better, you know. This is why I think film is so powerful from teaching empathy is like it really can put you in another person's shoes without judging them. And I think solutions start to look different. I think when you are judging people all the time, then certain solutions are closed off. This film, I think, provides an entry point where you're like, oh, you can actually kind of see that maybe you can change it. What the film captures is how solutions came from within Ethiopia, not from outside organizations or initiatives. For Ethiopian-born, New York-based painter Julie Maritou, that's what makes Different a powerful piece of art. This is this really intense topic, but it's a topic that really requires a lot of kind of in-depth examination and cultural kind of specificity about how it's told. It's an amazing thing to have an Ethiopian male feminist take on this story and, and, and articulate this narrative of amazing Ethiopian women. Meritu and her partner, Jessica Rankin, along with Angelina Jolie, supported the film as executive producers. After reading the script, Meritu and Rankin provided funds to get the film into production. It's not just that this is a bad tradition. That is something that you don't need the film to tell you. It shows the complexity of tradition and culture and evolution and change, and it shows the kind of self-determining kind of aspect of human beings and this kind of desire of resistance from within. Without giving away too much of the story, uh, I think that the issue of self-defense in many countries is a worldwide defense. The movie explains that and tells that to people. That's Kathy Bonk, executive director of the Communications Consortium Media Center. She spent the last 30 years leveraging media to change domestic and global policies affecting women, children, and families. Different's message reminds Bonk of The Burning Bed, a 1984 made-for-TV movie starring Farrah Fawcett as a woman who'd been abused by her husband for many years. and she put gasoline around her husband's bed and lit the fire and killed him. And it really sparked the domestic violence movement in the United States because this woman was acquitted. Both The Burning Bed and Different asked the audience to grapple with difficult questions like, who's at fault and how far is too far when it comes to abuse of women and girls? And finally, what difference can a film really make? It's the viewing of the film and also the conversation that takes place afterwards that equals basically a consciousness-raising moment so that both the men and the women, the mothers and the fathers, the girls and the boys come together and have an opportunity to express themselves about the destructive 
impact that something like an abduction of a young girl has. And if a film can spark that conversation, um, that's certainly a step toward culture change. Ethiopia has a rich tradition of public debate and discussion, which is celebrated most notably in a scene from Diffret depicting a traditional Ethiopian community court. A group of men are gathered together under a shady sycamore tree to discuss how to respond to the tragedy that has befallen their community. The filmmakers are hoping to initiate a similar discussion when they tour their film throughout rural Ethiopia this spring with pop-up cinemas. Basically, a large suitcase with a projector, a screen, a speaker, and a portable power pack. The film's director, Zerasane Burhane Mahari, is unashamed to admit this setup is all a setup. Whether you like it or not, if I go into a village and if I say to the local government or local leaders that I want to gather people so I tell them about violence against women, I promise you no one would, would show up. But if, if you say that you wanted to show a film, you know, they're going to come out and see it. That will open up the conversation, hopefully. A conversation about the treatment of women and girls that includes women and girls. That's what I think you have to start tracking in some kind of way, whether it be kind of thinking through the news stories that start coming out of Ethiopia, the reviews, um, the ways in which that people start to talk about Alafa in Ethiopia. That's, I think, the kind of stuff we would want to track. What would you start hearing in Ethiopia that would let you know that it was working? Ending Alafa is possible. You know, it's totally possible. It's not this thing that you just have to accept will go on forever and ever and ever. So actually, for people to think that, to me, would be, like, the victory. A theatrical release of Different in the United States is slated for the spring of 2015. For America Abroad, I'm Tennessee Watson. been listening to Saving Innocence, the global fight to end child marriage on America Abroad. This hour was written and edited by Mia Lobel and produced by Rob Sachs with additional production help from Flan Williams. Special thanks to Malik Ayub Sumbal in Pakistan and Ira Shreshta in Nepal. Audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra at KCRW. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the America Abroad or Public Radio International apps, or by visiting our website at pri.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. Support was also provided by the David and Lucille Packard Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.